Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve them. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today's episode is with Russ Roberts, the host of my favorite podcast, Econ Talk. I was excited to speak with Russ because he has influenced my thinking a lot over the years, uh, but has a somewhat skeptical take on effective altruism and what 80,000 Hours is doing. Over the years, I've found that disagreement from smart people, uh, who you otherwise often do agree with, uh, tends to be especially valuable. I'm happy to say that I think we found that we agree on more than we initially thought, uh, though that's certainly not true of every topic. In the first section, we talk about effective altruism and our different perceptions of what ideas the community associated with it uh, actually stands for. We then talk about whether it would actually be good to get people to care about uh, all beings, uh, regardless of who or where or when they are, um, or whether it would be good to improve uh, coordination between countries or whether that might just backfire. Next, we turn to empirical research in social science and and medicine uh, and to what extent it can be relied upon to have reliable results. And then finally, we discuss Russ's concerns with utilitarianism. EconTalk is a really educational show, uh, which I've been listening to for 12 years. And because it's been running weekly since 2006, uh, it has a huge back catalogue of 750 episodes that you could potentially work through. That's great, but it can make it a little bit hard to find the all-time best episodes. So if you stick around until the end of the episode, uh, I'll let you know how you can get a feed of my recommended top 100 episodes of EconTalk uh, of the show that you could potentially work through if you enjoy this conversation. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Russ. Today, I'm speaking with Russ Roberts. Russ is an economist and a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He did his economics PhD at the University of Chicago back in 1981, studying government transfer programs under the supervision of Gary Becker. In recent decades, Russ has focused on communicating economic ideas to the general public, including through books such as How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness, and The Price of Everything, A Parable of Possibility and Prosperity. But above all, for me anyway, he's the creator and host of EconTalk, a weekly podcast featuring fairly academic hour-long interviews. And EconTalk has actually been running since 2006, recently celebrating its 750th episode and was part of the inspiration for me to create the show. In fact, I've, I've been a listener to EconTalk, a subscriber, since I started studying economics as an undergrad back in 2008 and have literally listened to every single one of those interviews, uh, in many cases more than once. And yesterday I calculated that that means I've probably spent 300 to 500 hours listening to Russ's voice, which is 20 days constantly without sleep, which is surely more than anyone outside my immediate family and friendship group and probably more than a lot of them as well. So so thanks for coming on the podcast, Russ. Great to be with you, Rob. It's a little frightening, but uh, I, appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate your the time you've devoted to econ talk. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'm one of uh, one of many hundreds, possibly thousands. I hope to talk about your views on effective altruism, utilitarianism, and empirical social science. But first off, as I ask almost everyone, what are you working on these days, and why do you think it's important work? Well, as it turns out, I'm writing a book on these issues. The question of how do we deal with uncertainty. And to what extent does data help us make decisions? And the answer is, of course, data is often very helpful. But I think data is often misleading. It's seductive. And in our personal lives, where we often have to make decisions uh, facing irreducible uncertainty, what do we do? How do we deal with that? And I think we have a temptation to use data anyway. And I think that's a mistake. So I'm interested in all the issues that I hope we'll be talking about today. How do we make decisions across individuals when utilitarianism comes into that? How do we decide how to spend our charitable dollars, the question of effective altruism? How do we decide how to spend our lives? So what should we work on? How should we see our careers as as a mix of our 
you know, personal fulfillment or trying to make the world a better place. So I know these are things you're deeply interested in, and I'm deeply interested in them too. And I think we look at them differently. So I think it should be a good conversation. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, means you have even, I, I know you have a lot of thoughts on these issues, but I guess if you're writing a book about it, you might, might have even more than I, even more than I bargained for. <laughs> Yeah, so my plan for this episode is a bit different than what we usually do. Most often I let guests kind of outline their views on a topic for a while, you know, half an hour about some book that they've written and then erase some possible counter arguments. But a benefit of having listened to your show so much over the years is that I have a reasonable idea of some topics where I think we might disagree now, but uh, where I think we could converge at least a bit if we spoke, spoke about the topic for a bit. And then there's a bunch of practical issues like that, kind of like climate change or the impact AI might have on the future or you know, what's the right role for private philanthropy and whether people can, can be happy and satisfied with their lives without having a, a job at all. And all those are exciting, but today I want to kind of focus first on uh, three more fundamental topics. So the first of those is effective altruism and 80,000 hours as a career advising project, which I think you admire in some ways, but also have some reservations about, as you mentioned. Then the second is, yeah, how much we should trust empirical research in economics and medicine and psychology, or I guess I have a somewhat pessimistic take, which is that we should trust it less than most people think. But I think you have maybe an even more, a double pessimistic take. And the third is, yeah, the ethical theory of utilitarianism and, and weighing up welfare between different people, which I'm pretty enthusiastic about, but I think both of which you're, you're not so keen on. So does that, does that sound like a good plan? Yeah, sounds great. All right. So first, let's chat about effective altruism and 80,000 hours. And yeah, th those topics have come up on EconTalk a few times uh, over the years in your interviews with Will McCaskill and Peter Singer and L.A. Paul somewhat recently and Paul Bloom a couple of years ago. I don't expect you to have encyclopedic knowledge of our website, but I think you know a little bit about it. So yeah, what do you, what do you think of as the distinctive parts of effective altruism? I just want to kind of make sure first that we're not talking at cross purposes. So I'm a big fan of the idea of it. You know, I try to give 10% of my income to charity my after-tax income. And I think it matters. I think it's important. And I think it's important that it not just be some form of making yourself feel good, but actually makes the world a better place, or at least heads in that direction. So what I like about effective altruism, and um, I think it's extremely important, is its focus on results. I think it's tempting and easy to give money to charity just You'd say, well, I did a good deed. I gave away some money. I made a sacrifice. And so I think the focus of the effective altruism movement on outcomes is really a fantastic idea. Where I'm more skeptical, though, is the, the idea that we can use science or statistics or data to reliably hand out that money effectively. So while I applaud the idea that we should try to have impact, not just make a sacrifice, I think it's hard to know when that impact is, is real. And so while I applaud the, the focus of the effective altruism movement, I'm not as, as optimistic that they can be successful. Nice. So yeah, there's, there's two aspects there. One is the donating uh, and the other is kind of using data to, to figure out how, how that money can go the furthest. But I actually, I actually agree with you a lot on the second. Uh, this effective altruism is potentially a bit broader than, than what you've been exposed to uh, on, on EconTalk. There are quite a lot of people who decide to you know, try to have their impact through giving donations. But I think that's probably a, a, mi a minority of people now, or at least it's, it's just like one approach of, of many that, that people in, in effective altruism take. And personally, I focus more, I have more of an interest on you know, policy careers or, or research careers or, or ways that people can do good directly rather than by donating money. And on top of that, I'm, I'm, I'm especially interested in kind of shaping the long-term future of humanity and improving politics and, and our institutions and things like that, which is an area where, you know, using data might be helpful in some ways, but it's not obvious. You, know, you can't really do randomized controlled experiments on most of these topics. You have to use different methods to figure out what's effective and what works. 
And, and to be honest, having, having done an economics degree, I've also been exposed to all of the weaknesses of empirical economics and I share a bunch of your skepticism about it. So while I think there's, there's value that can be gotten from doing randomized trials to figure out which charities have the most impact, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily or that many of my colleagues are, are even more optimistic about that than perhaps the, the, the public as a whole. Yeah, I want to challenge that a little bit, sure. um, even though you're kind of agreeing with me. I, it seems to me that you're right, obviously, that there's more than one piece to it. But a huge part of it is, where should I donate charitable uh, money? And there, the overwhelming thrust is, I understand, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that you know we know, we know what is most effective. And for example, I, I haven't looked lately because I don't think it's the right answer, but for a long time, the right answer was, we need to buy bed nets to fight malaria for poor people around the world, or we need to fight worms, parasites in poor populations in Africa. So deworming is where you should give all of your charitable dollars to have the largest impact. And this is where utilitarianism merges with effective altruism and underlies effective altruism. That If you want to have the biggest impact of your money, you should be giving it to these, these things only, nothing else, because every dollar spent there is such a big bang for the buck. And I, I just think that's, I think it's the wrong way to think about charity, I think. But I do think it's a huge part. So I think there are two parts. I want to come back to the part that I know you're very focused on, which is career change and career path and thinking about how analytically or not we, we should think about our careers. One other thing I want to add is that I don't think randomized control trials are the only measure of efficacy or evidence. I, I mean, they're important, but they're, they can be misleading. They can be poorly done. They can lead us to overconfidence about what works and doesn't work. But most importantly, they're not the only way we learn about the real world. We learn about the real world in lots and lots of, of different ways. And I think that's that's important to keep in mind in the background. Yeah, this might be a quick interview. Oh, this is a quick section of this interview because <laughs> I, kind of, I couldn't agree with you more on, on most of these things, to be honest. I think that the part about giving and giving effectively and giving based on evidence is the part of effective altruism or part of the community that's gotten the most attention in the media or, or from other groups. And I guess it was for, for various reasons, I, I guess people decided to lead with that topic early on in the, in the early uh, 2010s, I guess, because it was easier for people to grasp, you know, you could, you could point to data that made it, you know, easier to communicate what you were talking about and, and communicate the idea of, you know, having a more cost-effective impact on things. But yeah, I think it definitely really has shrunk as a, as a fraction of what people are focusing on. And 80,000 Hours doesn't put any effort in, or we don't do any independent research on, you know, what, what charity is most effective or anything like that. And, I, and I, I cringe when people talk about charity as a scientific thing or choosing, like, we know the best charity. That's kind of mad. Well, to begin with, we haven't looked at most charities. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and, and like, it's, it's so uncertain. It's so incredibly uncertain, all of this stuff, that all you could ever do is kind of have a best guess at something that might be the most effective within a particular area. Like, it's po- it, it is possible that we have a decent guess at what are the best charities within global health and development. <laughs> I think maybe we could say that. But to, the idea that we know the best way to have an impact is kind of the opposite of what we think at 80,000 hours. In, in some ways, I think People in the general public can latch on to specific ideas that they hear about and think that they're very good. But the more you focus on these issues, the more you realize how little we know, just how, just how clueless we are about the, the effects of our actions and how hard it is to work out what's impactful. You know, I mentioned deworming because for a long time it, it was, I don't know where it is right now again because I don't keep up with the day-to-day, but for a long time it was considered the obvious only choice to make if you wanted to make the world a better place with your charitable dollars. You should give it to this handful of of organizations that help deworm folks. 
And that, that conclusion was based on a, on a randomized control trial, one randomized control trial. And, and that randomized control trial came into, uh, into question. And a, meta, a meta-analysis of, of deworming started to suggest that actually maybe it doesn't work so well. Its impact is quite limited. It may vary by place and time and circumstance. And um, now what? You know, you, you told me I need to give all my money because if I'm a decent human being, I should be a utilitarian and have the biggest impact on the most people was deworming. But now it turns out, oh, maybe the science was not so scientific. So I think that's I don't think that's unimportant. But I, I take your point that there are other aspects of the movement. I, I mean, let's turn to those. I'm I'm really interested in the um, in the 80,000 hours project. So help me understand it better. Yeah. OK, so. It's a bit hard to kind of quickly sum up 80,000 hours advice, but I guess some of the key aspects are we suggest that people try to contribute to a particularly pressing global problem, which I, I guess we, we we have like various rules of thumb for trying to figure out what, what global problems are especially pressing, like you know how many people are affected by the problem and, and, and how much, how many people are already trying to solve the problem. So, so is it neglected and might there be low-hanging fruit still there? Does it seem like a problem that's just extremely intractable and, and hard to solve because you know, there's systemic reasons why it's 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 insoluble, or does it seem like there's there's no particular reason why why it couldn't be fixed? People will look at other rules of thumb as well. Like, you know, is this a particularly urgent issue, or is this maybe a, a problem that can be left to future generations to to fix up? So we often suggest that people first think, you know, look out at the world and see, you know, what does the world need? What what, what problems are are most burning and and most desperately need solving? Then we also think once people have chosen a problem, they should try to take an approach that gets a lot of leverage on it, that, that as it gets a lot of bang for buck out of their time in, in trying to fix it. So that often that means looking at kind of what is the bottleneck to fixing this problem. Sometimes it's a lack of ideas. Sometimes it's a lack of money. So people should maybe go earn to give and, and donate. Other times it's a lack of you know, skills that are needed to build the organizations or the projects that, that might fix it. Often we suggest, for example, going and shaping government policy can get you a lot of leverage just because governments spend so much money. And also sometimes conducting fundamental research can, can get a lot of leverage because that research can end up influencing what a lot of other people do. And then I guess a next step would be to try to find a role that has very good personal fit for you. So that, you know, there's no point saying conducting fundamental research is, is a really valuable thing in principle if you just don't have the disposition for, for research. And it seems like people's People's suitability for different roles can, can vary massively and you really want to find an area where you can thrive and, and excel and, and be especially good, but better than other people. So try to potentially find your kind of comparative advantage. And then I guess maybe, maybe another distinctive idea or something that we talk about quite a bit is that especially early on in people's career, they could, should focus on building up career capital, you know, try to fo- think about a lot about improving their skills and improving their network and figuring out what they're good at because they've got, you know, decades ahead uh, in, in their career to potentially use those skills and, and that knowledge that they, that they build up. I guess, yeah, we, we, don't, we don't think that people should focus only on, on having an impact, but I guess it, it, it is kind of part of the message that we think, especially, or at least people in, in our audience, people who are, you know, very educated, often, often very, very privileged, potentially, you know, who, who could have a lot of influence on, on solving some of these pressing global problems. We think that it, that it would be a good thing if they, if they spent more time thinking about, you know, how could, they, how could they help others rather than just how could they have a career that's, that's enjoyable to them. How does that sound? In principle, that all sounds great, uh, <laughs> I, I, but I don't really actually think it's the right way to think about how to live your life or how to live your career. So l- let me try to suggest some things I find troubling about it. So you mentioned a whole bunch of factors. They're all reasonable. Any one of them is extremely reasonable. You should tackle an important problem. You should tackle a problem that people have not successfully solved, that you might have a chance of improving, that you might have a, an impact. It's a variation, really, of expected value theory to me. It's, it's like saying there's uncertainty about what, how your life's going to turn out. 
It's uncertain about what you're good at. It's uncertain about what the impact of your efforts will be. So try to maximize the full impact. So if you pick a problem that's trivial and that you can't help much, you're not going to have a big expected value. If you pick a problem that's important and you can help a lot, that would seem to be a better problem to to devote yourself to. So those are all you know reasonable in 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 describing them. But in practice, what I have multiple factors that like you've laid out. How, how do I deal with the trade-offs between this? So let me let me give you an example. When I was 19 years old, 18 years old, I guess some 17, sometime, I was a freshman in college, and I, I found out I was pretty good at economics, so I became an economics major, and it ended up pushing me down a road where I became a PhD in economics, and look, here I am, a podcaster, um, I've made rap videos, I've written novels, none of that was available to me at 17 years old. I had zero idea that was in my future, but it turned out that way. And have I, I have no idea how much of an impact I've had. I do know I have a few listeners to Econ Talk and, and a few people who appear to have watched my rap videos on YouTube, but I don't know what the real impact is. That would be, that's lovely, but it, I don't really know if I've helped educate anyone. I provided some entertainment, I think, and some education, but I don't know how much. I don't know what its net impact is. I have no idea. And I couldn't be measured. You could spend a lifetime trying to measure it and you couldn't measure it. So did I make a mistake or did I do the right thing? If let's say my alternative was to become an English professor instead of being an economist, of course, I didn't have to go into academic life at all. Could have done something more practical. I could have gone to Wall Street. I could have been a, an economist for a, a car company. People, those were careers that people talked about. I could have gone into government. At one point, I, th- I thought about that. So when I think about th- that enormous range of trade-offs within economics, and then I think about, oh, but I didn't have to be an economist. I could have been, say, an English professor. Would you conclude that that I did the right thing? I mean, would it really have been so much worse if, I mean, I happen to like economics now, but at the time, I also liked fiction. If I had, if I had devoted my life to helping 25 students a class and maybe a hundred students a year to become deeply devoted to the fiction of William Faulkner or to the poetry of um, Alexander Pope. Would that have been an inferior life or a better life to the life I've chosen and not literally chosen that that's happened upon me in many ways, as I suggested? I don't know how to answer that question. I, I don't think anybody could answer that question. Do you? Well, I think our goal isn't to kind of confidently say, you know, we're not trying to, you know, exactly measure how much impact people have had or, you know, run calculations to say this is exactly how much impact you'll have if you take this path or or another path. Basically, just just with like all complicated decisions like this or, you know, who to marry, you know, what things to study, what hobbies to take up. There's just enormous uncertainty. And I think all, all we're trying to do is provide tools and information that might help people make a, you know, marginally and incrementally better decision than, than they might otherwise. And I think you can see that, for example, that there are sometimes young people out there who haven't really thought about the issue of career capital, about, you know, a building up assets that will allow them to have a bigger impact in the future. Now, we can't exactly exactly say that on average, people think too much about the long term in their career, or that they don't think about it enough. We're not sure about that. But if someone hasn't really thought about that factor, I think that reflecting on it and thinking about what that might imply for, for their decisions will, on the margin, make them more likely than not to make a, to make a better decision. And so it's not really, so it, it, it isn't a science, it's, it's just an art. We're, we're just trying to make 
somewhat better decisions, you know, under, under, under massive uncertainty and, and not, not aim for perfection. To begin with, it's, it, is a, it is potentially a trap that people can fall into, reflecting on these things, trying to measure things, like putting numbers on, on everything and spending ages making a decision when really what they should do is just get started and then kind of collect information and, and cross the river by feeling the stones. So I think actually we, we may agree on how to go about building a career or making these decisions over time quite a lot. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering, is it that you think that you know, one shouldn't spend too much time in this sort of analysis and one should just go about it and, you know, opportunistically do things as they come along? Or is it that you, you disagree some kind of more fundamentally with the idea of building a career around trying to do as much good as possible or something like that? Well, it's funny because I'm sympathetic to the idea of it, the idea of doing as much good as possible. That That's a nice phrase, right? It's hard to uh, object in principle. Can't be again. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm, I'm in. But then the question is, you know, what, what does that, what does that mean? So, let me take another variant on my problem with this. And by the way, so where we agree, which I love, is that we both agree it's a craft. It's an art. It's not science. That is how to live a good life, where good could mean satisfying to you or good could mean impact on the world at large. Either of those, whether you're a totally self-centered person and just wants to have as satisfying a life as possible, or whether you're an incredible altruist, or in between, you're somebody who gets satisfaction for being generous to, and helping other people. In all those cases, I think being reflective is a good idea, and we both agree that it's not it's not science. But then the question is, you know, is it useful to think of this as something one masters? Is it useful to think of this as some well, let's take let's take golf. I used to play golf about three times a year. Now I play it about once a decade, and that's a stretch. But golf is something you can get better at. You can get better at it through lessons. You can get better at it through practice. You can better, get better at it through self-reflection, trying to think about how your, your game could be improved. So those kind of crafts, golf, chess, they're, they're prone to mastery if you devote yourself in the right way. And of course, you'll never become, you'll never pitch a 27-pitch perfect game in baseball You'll never have 18 holes in one, or at least it's never been done on a normal golf course. But you can improve. That would be just the better way, I think, to capture the craft art of it. But you can't, quote, fully master it. You can't perfect it. Now, I don't think that's the right metaphor for life. I don't think mastery is the right way to think about how to live better. I'm not going to give you a better metaphor yet. I'm not sure what it is, but let me tell you why. I'm not sure that's the right metaphor even to frame our thinking about it. So you started off by saying that the 80,000 hours project, you know, we talk about taking the most pressing problems. I think that was the opening example you gave. So reasonable people could disagree about what the most pressing problems are, right? So some people would say climate change. That would be easily their first most pressing problem. Other people might say violence against women. Others would say racism. These are all things that typically are in the public sphere. They're in the public sphere for a variety of reasons, but they're in the public sphere. They're the subject of public policy issues. They're things that legislation gets passed to try to improve and make them better. They're the source of activism, of people who are passionate about change, about improving the world. That's a whole, there's a whole realm of things like that. Poverty, clean water, clean air, climate, inequality, things that that most people, not everybody, but most people would agree are things we wish were different than they are. But what about things that are at the more micro level, like kindness, 
What if I said to you, and I think I could make the case, that kindness and the lack of kindness is the thing we ought to be focusing on to make the world a better place? And so I'm going to devote my life to improving that. Now, if you said that, you'd say, well, it's clearly a pressing problem. It's clear that you can be a kinder person tomorrow than you are today. But if I said, I want to have that radiate out from my actions to have leverage, I want to do more than just make myself a kinder person. I want to create a kinder world. And I'd say, "Mm, boy, that's a tough one. I'd say it's important, but I don't know how to head toward mastery in that. But having said that, it might be the most important problem. I could argue that it's the most pressing problem, the lack of kindness in human relations. In fact, the expression, be kind, everyone is in a battle, is a motto to live by that most of us, I think, fail to live by. We're inherently self-centered, literally. We're we're genetically, evolutionarily designed to be self-interested, not necessarily selfish, but self-interested and self-centered. We care a lot about ourselves, inevitably. And one could argue that the essential challenge of, of the good life for the world around us is to temper that self-centeredness to be kinder to the people around us, our family, our friends, our friends, our colleagues at work. And if you said to me, so how, how might a person, if, if you're listening, you say, yeah, well, I, I kind of agree with that. I, I'd like to devote my life to that. What should you do? Should you become a psychotherapist? That would be an interesting way to solve that problem. Well, not solve it, make progress on it. Perhaps you should become a meditator, a person who, who devotes themselves to mindfulness and self-awareness in how you interact with the present moment. Maybe you should become, go into religion. And, and you could argue that religion is one way in which kindness has been brought into the world. Or you could say the opposite. You could say, well, you know, I think religion is actually a force for unkindness. It tends to lead to seeing people as the other. And we should make the case for atheism. I think those are all interesting arguments. I wouldn't know where to start. I have no idea where to start. So if you're asking me, and I'm going to make it even harder for you, Rob, (laughs) okay? I'm 65 years old. I have most of my senses about me. I'm not at the top of my game right this minute. I slept about five hours last night, so I don't feel like I'm 100%. But I still got some productive thoughts. (laughs) I got a few. My mind is functioning. And there's going to be a point where it won't, right? I'm either going to be dead or my brain's going to start to deteriorate. But let's say I've got, if I'm lucky, 10 good years ahead of me, 65 to 75 years old. I've noticed in people in their late 70s, they start to get a little slower. Their brain doesn't fire quite as rapidly. They're, they're not quite at what the level they used to be, but this can still be pretty effective. But I think I got maybe 10 good years left. And let's say, you know, you think I'm making a mistake, staying at the Hoover Institution and doing this econ talk thing, or I'm worried I'm making a mistake. And I come to you and I say, Rob, you know, I want to make sure that the last 10 years of my life have the greatest impact that they could possibly have. What should I do? I could devote myself to my aging mother, who's 87 and lives on her own. I try to talk to her every day. I'm not always successful, but maybe I ought to make sure I talk to her every day. In fact, maybe I should retire. So I, after all, she raised me. Don't I owe her? Don't I have a moral imperative to be kind to her? Or maybe I should take a different set of skills. You know, I love writing songs. Maybe I should get on YouTube and, and write songs, anthems for, for free markets, something I think would make the world a better place. Or maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I ought to go volunteer at the local food kitchen and help people get their food there. I mean, so where do I start? Help me. Sure. Okay. So I think 
There's this a really long thing. enough ramp, ramp for you. <laughs> well, uh, we might be able to deal with it quickly because because we agree so much. At least the, at least the first two. So yeah, I, I, you you definitely can't achieve mastery in career choice in the way you can at at golf or, or sports. I mean, for multiple reasons. One is just the problem is harder. Uh, there's just so many decisions to make and so hard to optimize and so so much uncertainty. Much more uncertainty than than baseball, for example. And also the feedback is is very bad and you only get one go. So yeah, for all of those reasons, mastery is the wrong analogy. I was trying to think what is a similar analogy, and then I was like, is it like having a good relationship? Uh, and I was like, well, kind of, but you actually do get more feedback about that than probably you do about about career choice. And you can maybe have multiple goals at, at relationships over time and, and get a lot better at it. I could imagine thinking someone is a master of, you know, master of their marriage, at least to some degree. I think maybe a better analogy is being a CEO of a of a business and, you know, you got to try to figure out who to hire and who to fire. And that's really hard and figure out what products are worth making and what teams are going to work well together. You can definitely get a lot better at that kind of really difficult decision making, you know, on the, on, on the fly. And some people are much better at it than others, but you never master it. You know, even the very best people make lots of mistakes in, in those kinds of roles. Then I guess on, on kindness. Yeah, I don't think that it's, it's silly at all to think that, that kindness might be among the most important problems and something that, that uh, you know, readers of 80,000 hours should, should potentially focus on improving. We have something very similar in, in our list of um, potentially most pressing problems, which is, I think, positively shaping human values. Where I guess we talk about how you know over, over the centuries, over the th- over thousands of years, gradually people have come to care more and more about the welfare of others. You know, initially it was, it was most people only cared about you know white men. You know, then you're talking then the women, then like people of color. Like we got rid of slavery. You've had the kind of expanding circle of of moral consideration. And I think one of the most important things that we could do, or potentially one of the most reliably valuable things that we could do, is cause people to, is, is to continue expanding that circle so that, you know, all beings that, that are conscious and, and all beings that have welfare get considered, you know, at least in policy or, you know, ideally that, that we just care about the uh, care about the well-being of all and, and, and aren't as selfish as we are now. I think kindness, I, I might not call it kindness because that's such a broad class. I think at 80,000 hours would be interested potentially in trying to narrow down on some smaller part of the problem of kindness where we think, you know, perhaps it's particularly tractable or people haven't tried this one so much. Or you know, the, potentially the the welfare impacts are, are especially large if we can solve this this component of of increasing kindness. But yeah, there, there might not be that that much room between our views on that. I don't know. I, okay. I, I think I could. Let, let me try to disagree with. Well, I'm not going to try to disagree. I'm going to disagree <laughs> with disagree. you on the yep. on the expanding the moral circle. I saw a, um, a bro- there's a show on Broadway. It's in darkness now because of COVID. But there's a show on Broadway called Come From Away. Come From Away is the story of what happened on 9-11 when American airspace was closed right in the aftermath of the um, attack on the uh, Twin Towers. And a few dozen airplanes had to be diverted to uh, Newfoundland in Canada to a town called Gander. And Gander used to be a refueling station because planes didn't have enough range to reach long flights, so they'd have to stop somewhere. And and they built a big airstrip there for large airplanes. And that airstrip was still there, even though planes had gotten larger range and didn't need to stop there anymore. But conveniently, that strip was there. So hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people landed in this tiny town in the middle of Newfoundland. And these people who lived in this town were suddenly confronted with the fact that these thousands of strangers were there, and they didn't have a place to stay. They didn't have food. They didn't have any water. And at first, it seemed like it was going to be a very short stay, a few hours maybe, or a day or two, but it ended up being quite a long time before the airspace was reopened and before those planes were allowed to take their passengers to where they were eventually going to, wanted to go. And 
the the show is quite moving. It's a very very powerful musical, and and what's moving about it is how these small town folks rose to the occasion in in taking care of these strangers, and in doing so, what was motivating them was a sense that as a Newfoundlander, somebody from Newfoundland, that's what they did. You know, in the face of of crisis, in the face of hardship, you just did your job. You did what you're supposed to do. And they had an incredible pride, at least the way it's captured in the musical, and I think it's true of many places, that incredible pride that that was, that was what was appropriate and that they did that. And I would argue that, that that achievement was partly the result of a narrowness of moral focus, ironically, ironically, because they had an identity as a kind of person who would rise to the occasion, a Newfoundlander. And, you know, that comes from place, that comes sometimes from religion, that can come from many, many sources. It can come from, from secular, I don't, again, I don't mean to suggest religion's the only source of it, or that national pride is the only source of it, or regional pride, but it is part of our human makeup, evidently, to be motivated by that kind of force. And that was glorious. That was a really an incredible achievement. And it's not obvious to me that that would have been possible in a world where we all were encouraged to think of ourselves as not being rooted, as not being having an identity in, say, place. So when I think of nationalism, I have a lot of negative thoughts about nationalism, but I also have to confront the reality that sometimes nationalism is pretty, as it can be a powerful force for good. And that's just weird. So when you suggest that we should broaden our moral care to as wide as possible, to all sentient, say, or conscious beings, I'm not sure that's going to be effective given the nature of, of human beings and the way we were, we've evolved. I would worry about that. It's not obvious to me that we should care or be encouraged to care equally about everyone. I understand the advantage of it. I understand the good part of it. Certainly the move toward less racism, less sexism, less sexual judgment. That's got many, many wonderful things about it. But to extend it infinitely far that I care about, say, the entire universe and not so much about my family, which, by the way, is very much a thread in, in modern utilitarian thought. You know, in modern utilitarian thought, I am told that I should be ashamed of having a fancy birthday party for my four-year-old because that money would be better spent. It would have a more good for more people if I bought those bed nets in, in Africa or dewormed folks in Africa. The marginal benefit to, quote, humanity of my child having a fancy birthday party. I'm not a fan of fancy birthday parties, by the way. But just the claim is that having a fancy birthday party is an immoral act because of the kind of moral calculus you're suggesting we ought, we ought to embrace. And I think that's wrong. I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the human enterprise. I think we were, we were raised in families. We, we, were, we evolved in families. We evolved in small groups. It's just not obvious to me that we can be effective. In other words, I might be much better at giving charity in that world, but I might be a really bad dad. You know, I don't even know actually how I can spend time reading to my kid at night, knowing that there ought to be doing some consulting work at night, raising money and buying more of those bed nets. So for me, instead of talking to my own kid, because my own kid's probably going to be fine. So I, I, I think those kind of, that kind of calculus is just not obviously correct. Yeah. So 
we're kind of the, the ultimate pragmatists. So in as much as trying to increase concern for everyone is actually going to result in people being more selfish or, or not doing more good, that would be a good reason not to pursue that. And I guess even the possibility that it could backfire in that way is a mark against it, or at least going that far. I suppose I'm more hopeful than you that getting people to to try to care more, at least in principle, about not harming you know, all, all, all sentient beings would be good on balance, in part just because it seems like expanding the moral circle has so far had has positive impacts. So it could be that at some point it would go so far that this would then undermine people's motivations to be good and then make the world worse. But I guess it seems to me on the margin that it would still be good if, you know, ordinary people cared more about foreigners than, than they do right now, you know, cared more about the, the welfare of animals than, than they apparently do now, given, you know, how we treat them in farming. I agree that nationalism or maybe nationalism quite, isn't quite the right word, but patriotism or, or the idea of kind of group virtue or the, the desire to be an, a particularly virtuous person and, and you're, you know, staking out your identity in that way does have positive effects. It just kind of has to be then be weighed up against the negatives. And uh, I'd be open to kind of what, what evidence there is on, on whether, in fact, trying to improve kindness in that, in that way would be effective. Or maybe we should try to increase kindness in some other way that is, that is going to be more impactful and, and, and more functional. Can we go back to the statement you made about two minutes ago? You said... You know, given how much good we've achieved so far from broadening our moral our moral calculus, how do you know that? Yeah, how uh, do you know we've? I, I'm not so sure. I'm not as as uh, sanguine as you are that we that we've. I mean, I happen to. Yeah, it's, it's you feel like an idiot making this clear, but obviously it's it's a better world without slavery. Obviously, it's a better world where women and and people of different sexual orientation are respected rather than condemned or vilified or abused or oppressed. But it's not obvious to me that that the larger trends of of human history are, are are headed in the right direction. That particular thing, I think, is probably those are all good. Not probably; this is certainly good. But the the broader trend: are we doing better than we did five hundred years ago, a hundred years ago? We're doing better economically, financially, yeah, financially. Yeah, I don't think we're. Are we really better people? Yeah. So I've recently been listening to this lecture series, I think called The Other Side of History, where it goes through, you know, from tens of thousands of years ago, what was life like just for an ordinary, an ordinary person? Uh, trying to you know, set, set aside rulers and people who usually feature in history and just think about everyday life. I have to say, it's just, it's just shocking, the, the cruelty that people meted out to one another, at least according to, to this lecturer, you know, in, in the ancient Greek world and the ancient Roman world, no one, not, not even ex-slaves, raised the possibility that slavery was bad and, and, and should be abolished. And you just have like the, the cruelest punishments uh, meted out to people for, for relatively minor infractions, you know, just, just potentially not, not being Greek or not being Roman and, and being, being captured in war. So there's always tons of uncertainty about whether the world has, has really gotten better. It could be that, you know, it's gotten better or like welfare has gotten, has improved in some ways, but then it's gotten worse in some other way that we're, that we're not counting properly. I guess people could argue that our treatment of the natural environment is now worse and that more than offsets gains that, that we've had in, in other ways. But I think if I, if I look at the big picture and I think, you know, how, has, how have human values changed over the last few thousand years, it just does seem to me that they are now more conducive to, to people being happy and, and having good lives and, and not suffering horribly at the, at the hands of other, of other people. Well, yeah, not I, so sure. it's a great point about the day-to-day cruelty. I agree with that. I think that there was a viciousness and tawdriness to daily life, obviously, and not just along the lines you're talking about, but just from you know, emotional well-being, uh, insecurity, avoiding starvation. There's a lot of, we've made a lot of improvements on those dimensions. But, you know, when you ask me how much better we are than we were, say, in, in Greece or ancient Greece or Rome, you got to look at the 20th century. 20th century is a deeply disturbing counterpoint 
to your view. You've got the rise of communism and, and fascism, Stalinist Russia and uh, Hitler's Germany that I mean, we're talking about 100 million people dead. That's a level of human cruelty that's that, that dwarfs the slavery of the, of the Greeks. I don't know how to think about that. Well, I do know how to think about it. It's horrible. <laughs> so I, I don't know what yeah. to – it's hard to make that, that moral calculation of progress, mm. I think, in the face of that. Yeah, I mean, this is another area where we kind of agree with just maybe a slightly different framing. So I think that people have become more moral over time, but we've also become technologically much more advanced and, and our ability to do horrible things has increased you know, much more than, say, has our, has our wisdom or, or our kindness. I think we've seen some improvements in kindness, but you know, our ability to you know, destroy the world through nuclear war, it's just like something that's completely unprecedented and completely different than, than what we had before. And so that is one, one reason or one angle on why it is that I'm especially interested in kind of global catastrophic risks and trying to improve the institutions that we have globally for dealing with catastrophes and trying to foresee them and prevent them, especially catastrophes that are caused by, by human action, you know, whether it's malice or, or negligence. It's like technology has raced ahead of human prudence and, and, and human kindness and human moral development. And I think we, we really want to push, push very hard on our ability to, to work together, our moral values, our ability to, to make sensible decisions in order to bring them a bit more back into line so that we're not in such a dangerous situation. Does that sound kind of sensible? Yeah, but I don't know how to, you know, I agree with you. Those are all good points, but I know how to work together better with my family, right? My family and I have a very, I have four children. My wife and I have a very complicated dynamic with each other, with each child, when the four, six of us are together, when subsets of us are together, it's all different. And it's a great learning experience, not like golf. Uh, it's not to be mastered. It's to be explored, improved on if you can. Not even, again, not obvious how you get better at it, but life does give you lots of data. It gives you lots yeah. of experience in, <laughs> in of those feedback. areas. So if you said to me, you should devote the rest of your life to getting better at being a, the father of your children, and you can debate whether it's important when you're 65 versus when you're, you know, 35, 40. But I have an idea of how to do that. I have an idea. I may not succeed at it. I may struggle at it. I'm sure it's imperfect. But if you said to me, you know, I think Americans should get along better with Russians, Chinese, and uh, Swedes. I don't know how to start that. Now, we've tried as humanity. We've tried to improve that. We created the League of Nations. We've created the United Nations. I'd say both those institutions were utter disasters and failures for the most part. Some good things, mostly bad. I don't know how to get there from here. I don't even, you know, when you say we have to get along better, I, I, of course, that's a nice idea. I don't know how to do that. And in particular, I would suggest that maybe the lesson there to be learned is we should do actually fewer things together and more things locally. So there's a natural impulse, I think, to say, well, you know, climate change, that's a global problem. We can't solve that locally. Now, I'm not sure that's true. I think it's true at some level. I think if it's true, if the goal is literally to reduce carbon internationally, carbon emissions, probably have to do it as an international project, although you could make a lot of headway as an individual nation and maybe even a little bit of headway as an individual, and therefore each individual together combined with others could make some headway when combined. But there's a whole other question of, well, that might be true, but what if by getting together you create tyranny? You allow someone to totally dominate this world government you think is necessary to fight climate change. And as a result, 
you're going to help enslave the world under the dominion of a, of a criminal mastermind. And in fact, so what you ought to be doing is, you know, what Nassim Nicholas Taleb argues for often is decentralized. It ought, you, we want to be more like Switzerland, where we're going to concede that we can't solve national problems well, but we're also going to make sure that we don't create the kind of national mistakes that come from hubris, from centralization, from the corruption of power being concentrated. Rob, what do I do? How do I know which <laughs> of those is the right way to go? I have no idea. I mean, I actually have an idea. I have a preference. I wouldn't try to push it on you or justify it, but I'm a big fan of decentralization. And if you go that way, let me go down this route a little bit, and then I'll let you, let you respond. If you go down that route, basically what you're saying is I'm going to be better at some of these problems, the local ones, and worse at the national ones. And so therefore the way I'm going to, so then, then what? Answer, I'm going to try to adapt to climate change at the international level because I know I can't fix it internationally. I'm going to do the best I can at the national level, best I can at the individual level. I'm going to proselytize. I'm going to preach. I'm going to encourage people to lead different kinds of lives. I know that's imperfect. I can't do it as well as if I were a good human being, a saint in a position of authority over all the world's citizens. But since I worry that there aren't going to be any saints in that position, in fact, the worst will rise to the top, I'm going to forego the right solution, which is this international government run by saints. And I'm going to cope with that by saying, well, it's going to be imperfect. I'll have to adapt. And as a result, I won't necessarily love what I get, but I wouldn't like what I get in the other world either. So those are, to me, the tensions that you have to deal with philosophically when you grapple with these kind of essentially insoluble problems. Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, to some, you're kind of portraying what you're saying as maybe an objection to effective altruism or an objection to, to our approach. But I think of this as just part of it. This is what you're saying is kind of like the conversation that we have within 80,000 hours all the time and that you read you know, in, in blog posts and, and people speaking to one another, one another at, at conferences related to effective altruism. So that obviously figuring out how would you, you know, reduce the risk of a war between the United States and China, which I think we would agree, it seems like Huge. it would be a bad thing on balance. It's a very important yep. issue. Yep. It's, it's not going to be easy to figure out how to do that. And, you know, even if you'd succeeded, you, you might never, never really know. But I do think that if you had a community of hundreds of people who, you know, were well-meaning and had really thought things through and, and were concerned about whether they were actually having an impact and, and worried about unintended consequences and thought, you know, well, if we, if we tried to fix the problem in this way, would that make, you know, international totalitarianism more likely? Something we've actually talked on the show about with, uh, with Brian Kaplan. I think that that group could make some headway. It's, it's not, a, not, not a very tractable problem, as we say, but... The scale of the issue, the importance of the issue is so great that I think it's worth people potentially having a crack or, you know, dedicating their career to, to trying to make progress on this, on this issue, knowing that there's a high probability that, that they won't succeed, but that if they, if they do make progress, that it would just be extremely valuable. So I guess we, yeah, we, we do face this trade-off between, you know, we can do things for our family, we can do things, I can do things for my housemates that I can be pretty confident has made their, their life better. But kind of the scale of the benefit there in terms of the number of people affected and, and, and how much they benefit just is obviously a lot lower than preventing nuclear war. Whereas if I go for the nuclear war thing, well, the benefit is very large, but it's extremely uncertain what is going to be beneficial. It's very easy for your actions to backfire and, and, and make things worse. But I think on balance, if you want to you know, help the largest number of people in the biggest way possible, you're better off trying to do something along the lines of preventing nuclear war, trying to find something like that that's a good fit for you. And, and they're just trying to do your best in what is admittedly like an extremely difficult situation. Yeah, what, what do you make that, of that? Well, that's a good argument. I, the problem I have with it is that, you know, it can be summed up in the, the two words political science. 
I don't know who it was that put the word science after politi- <laughs> after political. I know of a of a, a thinker who used to call it political science. Yeah, <laughs> meaning putting it in scare quotes or sarcasm. And we know it's not a science. That's that's we all agree with that. It's it's an art, as you say, or a craft. But let, let's think about the the informational side of this. So if I have to figure out what the biggest problems facing the world are, that, that's, that's an informationally challenging problem. But I get started on that pretty quickly, right? And we've made a list impromptu, you and I, in this conversation. Hunger, starvation, poverty, war, cruelty, climate issues, environmental issues. Uh, Development of new and- weapons. Animal welfare, human well, – it's a, it's, it's a long list, but it's not that long, right? It's not that long. We'd all agree that on many of those, maybe not every single one, but on many of those, some progress would be a good thing, some progress, even if you couldn't solve it. And you just ask yourself, well, let's take the China example. That's a great example. I, I agree with you very much that reducing the risk of, of a military confrontation with China is a really good idea. I have to say, I, I don't know where I begin to start to think about that and how to actually achieve that. If I devoted my life to political science, which I think would be a mistake, even though I respect many of my friends in the field, but for me, it'd be a mistake. But let's say I, I was passionate about that. I real, I thought I agreed with you. I think it's a central problem and I want to be aware of the unintended consequences. So I have to study history and I have to study past failures. I have to understand how how political preferences of citizens aggregate. And this is just the United States, by the way. I forget the fact that I also have to master Chinese culture, Chinese politics, Chinese decision-making, which are not the same as ours. All those are going to be a little bit different, maybe a lot different. I mean, that's a lifetime just to get started. That's why you need a community of people. It, like, it is, it's, it's an it's unfathomably large problem for, for one person. But by the time you, you know, properly understood the issue and had any idea about what you should do next then, you know, your career would already be over. But I yeah. think if you, if you do have hundreds of people, thousands of people, then you can have some of them who, you know, spend their time thinking about, you know, what is it that, that we ought to do, studying all of that history, who then, you know, <laughs> write papers or write blog posts that then guide the actions of other people who are more practitioners, who are more, you know, in the government, you know, forming, into, forming, you know, policy regarding China. And then potentially they can do a better job and on the margin, you know, change, change the risk of, of a conflict with China and make it slightly lower. To some extent, that's the whole reason why we have the effective altruism community and 80,000 hours as a project advising people is that if, if you just left people to themselves, they'd have to do all of this research for themselves up front to try to figure out you know, what are the most pressing problems in the world and which ones are solvable and which ones aren't. And potentially by, by pooling our resources and having you know, dedicated people, it's kind of like me, who <laughs> try, to try to look into these issues and develop at least a bit of expertise across a, a few of them, then we can have a research resource that, that people can turn to that, that can guide them and they could potentially make career decisions on a human, human timescale you know, within, within years or 10 years rather than 50 years when they've already retired. So I like that point. I think that's a great point that, that you need to leverage the knowledge and wisdom of other people. The challenge is knowing which ones to follow and listen to. You could make the argument, I think it's a bad argument, but you can make the argument that, you know, you really shouldn't worry about China. Uh, it's not your job. You're not good at it. Too much time to master it. That's why we have the State Department in the United States. That That's their job. Now, I mean, that's a reasonable argument. And I think most people throughout human history live their life that way. Oh, you know, that problem, the experts, the elite, they'll, they'll fix it. They'll take care of it. We know, of course, that the State Department and the equivalent bodies outside the United States have failed 
numerous times <laughs> and made things worse, as you point out. Yeah, I know you can see that. The law of unintended consequences is, is large. But, but the real problem, by the way, isn't just so much that the world's complicated. It's that plus the fact that the people in the State Department have a whole different set of incentives that aren't mine. Right? They're not out there trying to figure out what's best for Russ Roberts or, or Rob Wiblin. They're, they're often worried about what's best for them. And you know, I don't think there's a better artful portrayal of this than the TV show The Wire. The Wire, at least the first season, first couple seasons, especially the first season, the first season of The Wire is about the drug war in Baltimore, Maryland. It's about the, the fight between the police who are trying to stop drugs from getting to drug users and trying to stop drug dealers from successfully serving their customers, and those drug dealers trying to do their job and and do what they think is going to be best for them to make a living. And both sides end up morally complicated because they care about their promotion or they care about their... The police are not the heroes. The drug dealers are not the villains. But there's some really heroic police officers and some really villainous drug dealers, just like in real life. And vice versa, there's some horrible policemen and some drug dealers who are just trying to scrape by and help their family. It is a morally complex show that shows the complexity of those kind of interactions. And, you know, I think about, you know, oh, I don't need to worry about the drug war. I'll just let the police figure that out. Oh, boy. Is that a, <laughs> is that a bad idea in my view? Others think, absolutely, yeah, of course. They're the experts. They're really good at it. Let them solve it. And, of course, I mention that because I don't use drugs. I don't think I don't think drugs are you know, the caffeine. Big fan of caffeine, but I don't use recreational drugs, so-called recreational drugs. I like penicillin and antibiotics also, but I don't use recreational drugs. And I, but I think people should be free to choose their own what they what they ingest. I don't think the government should be involved in that. And part of the reason, besides the fact that I think it's important to treat human beings as adults and not as children, but the other part is that giving power to people with guns to give them the right to break into people's homes, to look for these things that we've decided, some people have decided are not good for you, is a really bad set of incentives that gets unleashed. And I know you don't, we probably don't disagree with that, but I think it captures the challenge of this sort of elite class or educated class that's going to, that I'm going to leverage. One more example, and I'll shut up. Sorry, rambled on here, but we're at the end of August in 2020 having this conversation. And the two biggest things going on in the United States right now in the public eye. Obviously, you'll, you'll understand, I could argue that the biggest thing going on in my life right now is, is my relationship with my wife, given the way we've been talking. It's not irrelevant. But the biggest public challenge, and I get along with my wife, we have a great marriage, I, I like to think, but I don't want to make, get people alarmed. But the biggest public challenge we have, there's two of them that are in the news constantly right now. It's, it's racial relations, particularly the role of the police in, in urban areas in the United States. And the second is the, is the pandemic coronavirus. I have a lot of trouble. I'm a pretty educated person. I spend way too much time consuming information about these two things. I have a lot of trouble figuring out what's going on. And that's just these two things. So, and, and I think that's, a, by the way, it, it used to be the case that people knew what was going on. They were often wrong. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, there was a received wisdom from elites or educated folks or experts. And a lot of times that was just wrong. It, sometimes it was self-centered, the kind of corruption I'm, I'm implicitly talking about here, that people serve themselves rather than some larger good in their role as, as members of the, of the elite. But now it's just like, I don't even know, there is no consensus anymore about what's going on. There's two consensuses. 
There's there's two consensuses, one on each side of the ideological divide, one on each side of the partisan divide, one on each side of the political divide. And if you said to me, oh, come on, let's figure it out. Let's figure out what's, what's really going on. I'd say, you know, I don't know where to start. So hard. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good reason to specialize when you're when you're trying to do good. And, you know, if you try to follow every every pressing problem in the world, then you're going to end up, you know, properly understanding none of them and not being able to make decisions about what's going to be helpful. But, you know, if you if you spend decades trying to understand, you know, pandemics and preparing for a moment like like this one, then potentially you do have expertise to offer and, and you can suggest things that that will help to reduce the pandemic, you know, at, at, at better, better than even odds. Just taking a step back for a second, I think it's interesting that so make all of these arguments about or, you know, how hard some of these problems are, are to fix, how easy it is to have unintended consequences, how hard it is to know even where to begin on, on ways that you could improve something like international relations between the US and China. And interestingly, there is quite a big school of thought within effective altruism that kind of takes that view and thinks that, that they will make the same criticisms uh, of, of what I think that people should do, that you are. And then they tend to fall back and say, well, but at least we can work on global health, say. At least we can you know, have some confidence that we can save lives in the developing world or increase people's incomes just by giving them cash. Or potentially, you know, we could invent alternatives to meat that then people will eat that instead. And factory farming will will become a smaller industry. They point to other things that they feel they have more confidence that they're going to be able to have an impact because they think that things like international relations, preventing nuclear war, you know, shaping the development of new technologies, that's that's just too hard. That's that that's beyond the scope of human understanding to, to have a predictable influence. It's interesting. That you, I can kind of imagine you as part of the as in the effective altruism community, but just so pessimistic about one's ability to, to predict one's actions that you've gone beyond that. Where you, you're not well. I actually don't. I don't actually know where you would stand on on donating to, to global health or going going to pursue a career in improving health in in, in really poor countries. So let's can we take let's take an example from that. And that's really an interesting way to think about it. And I. You won't be surprised, Rob. I don't think that's I don't think those people are right either. <laughs> yeah. But but let's take let's take let's try to think through why I think that uh, or why that's my first thought. Maybe I'll change my mind by the end of the conversation. But and you know my job is to get you to shut down eighty thousand hours and become a <laughs> a gardener a gardener because I would think gardening is no I'm kidding just just be kind um, of my housemates yeah exactly you should just spend your time serving those people you live with let me take an interesting um, so let's take alcohol let's take drink whiskey, beer, wine, et cetera. So I like to drink. I have, uh, you know, I'll have a, a, a scotch once, maybe once or twice a week. I'll sometimes have wine with dinner. A lot of people think wine and, and alcohol is really bad for you. Some people think it's good in moderation. Most people are pretty agreed that it's bad in excess. total. In excess, yeah, in excess. So let's say you have a friend who's an alcoholic and you've watched his life fall apart. His wife's left him. His kids won't talk to him. He's on the street because he can't handle alcohol. What do you do for that person? Now, in that situation, I'm trying to leverage, trying to flesh out the way I've been thinking about information in our conversation. So, you know, if that person's a stranger, if I I meet a homeless person on the street with alcohol in their breath and who appears to be having a hard time, you know, my ability to help that person is pretty small. So I, I... I, I give them money. I give them a dollar. Not a lot of money. Maybe I should give them more. But I'll give them a dollar. And and I understand that they'll probably use it to drink. Some people say, yeah, you should give them food. Well, that just means they'll take the money they were going to spend on food and spend it on alcohol now. So, you know, giving them food is not as morally, obviously, a good thing as, as giving them money. And my view is giving them money shows a sign of respect for them as a human being. It says, I'm not going to treat you like a child. I'm going to let you be autonomous, have agency. And, and responsibility, even though you may not use it in the way that 
I think is good. And in some sense, you might yourself struggle with because you have a, an issue with alcohol. But I don't know how to do much for that person. So I just give them money and I, that's the, probably the best I can do. And, and, and you could argue I shouldn't even give them money. Now, I would make a contrast between that person and a close friend or a brother or a sister who's struggling with, with those issues because I might have a much better understanding of, of where they've been and where they could go. And I might be more forceful in my intervention with them besides giving them money. I'd certainly treat them differently than I would a stranger. And then you can step back one more level and say, so let's take the, um, the alcohol issue in the case of a family member. I might not only not serve alcohol at meals where that family member was at, I might even, this would be you know a little hard, but I might go to their house and help them make their house alcohol free. I might do it against their will. If I loved them and thought enough about my own confidence that this was good for them, I, that wouldn't be an easy thing for me to do as a classical liberal, but I might do that. But I would never do that at the national level, right? I would never do that at the international level because I because of the law of unintended consequences. Now, I because all the things we talked about before with the drug war and, and other things, even though I understand that even at the personal level, my intervention with a family member might have unintended consequences and might damage my relationship with them. So it's a whole, it, it gets, it's complicated a different micro textural way, but it just, it's, it's hard to know how to think about, you know, if I specialize in this and I, and I try to devote my life to it at a large level, it's not obvious that the things that work at the large, small level, are things that work at the large, well, I know they're not the same. It doesn't work that way. There's a certain kind of in, inherent complexity. And it's partly because I don't have the information I need at the national level to make it work. I don't have the detail of how to structure it, right? So, for example, with my, and I'm thinking I'll end here, I apologize, it's not such a logical narrative, but we'll get there maybe. You know, with, with a sibling or a friend, I, I might decide to vary my response depending on their relative situation that day. At the national level, it's such a blunter, more blunt, type of intervention that's necessary. I can't tailor it. So again, to me, a lot of these problems that we're talking about argue for a more nuanced, customized solution that can never be implemented in a grand way and can only be implemented at, at, at a local, in a local way and sometimes even in a family way. So I think that's another part of this problem of, of information. Yeah, I think I would completely agree with you in the case where you're comparing you know, helping a family member or a friend who's struggling with alcoholism versus a stranger you know, in your country who's, who's struggling with alcoholism. In that case, it just seems far more tractable to, to try to help the person who you already know. You're, you're far more likely to succeed, and, and that's a good reason to do it. I guess the, the global health people, I think, would argue that the trade-off that we actually face is something more like deciding whether to help a friend who has alcoholism or a stranger who really needs a measles vaccine or a stranger who has, you know, a, a bacterial infection and just needs antibiotics that are, that are really cheap to buy for them. That, that they've tried to find, you know, issues that remaining issues in the developing world where it does actually seem like there are fixes that can be scaled at a without having that deep local knowledge. I mean, of course, they, they do work with, with local partners to understand the specific situation. But we kind of think that antibiotics help to cure bacterial infections most of the time in most places. It's not super contextual. And also just the, the people over there are so much poorer than, than other people in, in, in your country in, in, in almost all cases that uh, there's things that they can't buy for themselves that really would be very helpful for them. 
So, yeah. So that's I, a great – thanks for bringing me back to what the real question was. I totally forgotten yeah. by the time I was, you know, <laughs> musing about my, my siblings' alcohol pro, alcoholism problems, although they don't have any. I just want to say that publicly. For those of you who know, my brother and sister, I think they're fine. But <laughs> I, I, I think, again, the challenge there is that – well, we have a couple challenges. One is the, the deworming example is a, is a sobering example, that that was thought to be a clear public health issue that maybe is more complicated – so just just on the deworming one, yeah. So so there was one study early on from from the nineties, early two thousands. Uh, you know, it showed extraordinarily positive results from deworming on on income and, and educational achievements. Education, yeah. I think you know anyone who really understood statistics or social science would have looked at that and said, well, you know, maybe that's an interesting piece of evidence, and you know, it, it's cool that they did that research, and and there's a good reason to go out and try it again. Or even, you know, that this might fall through, or especially, you know, if we did it again, we because this had such an unusually large positive effect, we would expect that if we did it again, the positive effect that we would find or the effect we would find would be a lot smaller. But, you know, given that we have this kind of clue, this suggested piece of evidence that the impact might be very good, you know, it, while we're doing follow-up studies to find out whether this, this really does pan out, maybe we should, you know, start doing more deworming in the meantime. And it's interesting, I guess, GiveWell is, yeah, is known for having recommended the Schistosomiasis Control Initiative, which, which does deworming on a, on a big scale in many countries. Something that people don't remember from their recommendation is that they, they said in their suggestion to donate, there's a, there's a good probability, there's a, there's a high probability that the impact that this has is much smaller than, than was suggested in that study, and it might even be nothing. Or, or like, there's actually a decent chance that this will just not replicate, and in fact, they won't have any impact at all. Because they, they've been, <laughs> these are people who've been through lots of studies and just seen how often things don't pan out when you, when you try to replicate them or, or try to scale them up. But they said, it's so cheap. And if it does work, and you know, so it says that there's a 20% chance that it does work like this, or that, and there's you know, another 20% chance that it has a smaller impact. If you do the expected value calculation, given how cheap it is, and given that it doesn't really have negative side effects, we think it's, it's, it's good value and expectation, even though there's a good chance that it has no impact at all. And I think that's, that's kind of a reasonable way to make decisions. And, and in the meantime, you, you do want to do follow-up studies to try to see, you know, is this one of the best buyers in, in, in global health? Or is it that you know, uh, that initial study was mistaken for some reason? Perhaps they didn't randomize it properly or, or whatever else. That just seems like a kind of sensible way to, to, to approach things. And you're always going to be kind of groping through the darkness, trying to make best guesses with, with hazy evidence. But I think that's a reasonable way to approach kind of global health and, and, and that sort of medical research. So I, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I, I'm, I'm not sure how to organize them all. Maybe we spend the, you know, the rest of the time just on that. But I, I, I actually want to pick on a, a, a much tiny little part of that, which is that, you know, you said, actually, you know, their recommendation was was much more nuanced and tentative and, and it was more like maybe. What's interesting to me is that that isn't the way it was conveyed. <laughs> yeah, in, in it's my, not the way to my to my it wasn't conveyed that way to my consciousness. Now maybe I misread it, maybe I failed to read between the lines or the footnotes or whatever. But I remember it being more like this is a no brainer, and it might not have been Give Well that was making that no brainer claim. It might have been people who were just you know maybe it was bed net manufacturers who were uh, <laughs> uh, excuse me deworming pill makers yeah, big deworming um, yeah. So it's interesting. This is a separate issue we haven't talked about yet, but it is an interesting phenomenon that I think as human beings, we really like certainty and we're prone to overestimate the confidence that we should have in, in these kind of findings and conclusions. You know, I remember my memory, it might be wrong, but my memory is that give well, you know, said, here are the three charities you should give to, period. It wasn't like, here's another hundred that might be good in different areas. It was like, here are the three, or maybe it was two. And, and of course, that's so good. I don't have to think about it much. I just flip a coin even between the two. Yeah, I'll split my that. money. I'll give half to one, half to the other. But I just, it's an interesting side point that, that we consume 
these kind of things very um, with great difficulty because we like certainty. And so even if you mention the caveats, it's kind of hard to remember them when it comes time to make a decision. I mean, there's a lot of different effects that, that push in that direction. Yeah, one thing is you kind of forget the nuance and the subtlety and you just remember the recommendation. And then when you repeat it to other people, you don't have that long. So you just say, oh, it's yeah. definitely duty worming. <laughs> and then there's also kind of the, the marketing thing. I think GiveWell are pretty scrupulous. You know, their, their pages really do lay out all of the evidence and they try to be very careful in, in how they word things. But then there's other groups that uh, start pushing it and perhaps they care less about, you know, bringing in all of the caveats and all of the uncertainty. And so people hear that message. And maybe they think that giving a more confident message will encourage people to give more. So there's a bit of a tendency in that direction. I think people, are, the general public is beginning to realize that scientific research, social science research, medical research is perhaps not as consistently reliable as, as they thought, or at least as the, as the media used to portray. And people are becoming more skeptical. And I, and I think that's a, that's, a, that's a positive thing. But A yeah, lot of people don't agree, Rob. A lot of people disagree. They think this is really dangerous because it's going to make people think that there's no such thing as science. And the next thing you know, they're going to, they're not going to believe in evolution. And the next thing you know, I don't know what the next thing you're going to know is what they're not going to teach their kids. <laughs> I, I'm not, I, I think it's more worrisome. I think those people are more worried that people are going to become religious fanatics, but I, I no, think that's I mean, a fascinating. I think, I think the real problem is people trusting something too much and then they're let down when it can't deliver on these excessive promises. I think if people. Oh, I agree. Like, science, natural sciences, medicine, social science, all of these things can deliver understanding and knowledge within reason. Sometimes they can provide us with some knowledge and guidance, but you don't want to trust them too much. You want to like also give weight to common sense and, and your priors and, <laughs> and look, at, look at a big body of literature, consider you know, what do other fields have to say about this. It's all about aggregating lots of different pieces of evidence because you just so rarely get any one smackdown piece of evidence in, in those domains. It's, it's not like physics. Uh, I'm not sure. I think physics is say it is like physics. Okay, it is like physics. Sorry, I shouldn't. Yeah, it's no, not it's like true. it's not the way we think about physics. Yeah, we think about not, physics is truth and falsity. It's all very black and white. It's not it our probably fa- isn't. It's not our fantasy about physics. Yeah, yeah, That's so true. Yeah, maybe let, let's push on to the section about empirical research. We spent quite quite a bit of time on the effect of altruism, and, and I think we've reached. Well, we've found that we agree, maybe maybe more than we thought. Yeah, oh, I agree, and I loved what you just said. I thought that was very well well summarized, and I agree with it. Yeah, so. Study economics and then afterwards doing this job where I have to look into evidence and scrutinize claims and see whether, you know, advocates are really telling the truth. Like you, I've become more pessimistic about what empirical research shows. But interesting, I think I've also over time become more skeptical about careful theory and reasoning. And I guess if you think about it, there's, there's different ways you can try to understand the world, right? It's kind of your prior beliefs and kind of common sense reasoning and intuitions. Then a uh, second one might be kind of careful theorizing and, and reasoning about a problem, kind of, you know, economic, microeconomic uh, textbook. And then the third one would be this kind of formal empirical research, that, you know, just, just let the data speak. I think all of these have, have major problems. You know, common sense is sometimes just completely off base. You can build elaborate theories that just don't resemble reality at all. Uh, you know, randomized controlled trials can be done improperly. And there's m- lots of just incredibly low quality empirical research. One thing that's interesting is I feel you pick on the empirical research a lot. And I'd be interested to hear you talk more about, you know, doubts that you have about theory and about, about common sense and maybe try to weigh up the weaknesses that, that all of these different approaches have rather than focusing on, on, on just the weaknesses of empirical research in particular. Well, I'll start with a confession. Yeah. Since I haven't done much of that in this conversation. So a lot of times I see empirical work and I go, you know, that doesn't even pass the sniff test exactly. for me. And the sniff test is kind of like... Um, Common sense, right? It's exactly what you're talking about. It's like, you know, when I when I do a little armchair theorizing about this, it's just not plausible that, that say, when people hear the word Florida, 
they think of senior citizens and therefore they walk more slowly to, <laughs> yeah. to pick on a particular psychological test that I just thought never – psychological study that I thought never passed the sniff test. This idea that when people hear words associated with the elderly, they move more slowly. When you look at the data on that in that study, people tried to replicate it. They couldn't. So that it was clear – in my view, it was a mistake. It was not science. It wasn't truth. It was just a, a particular finding – and and not not reliable, not something you could you could count on. This is so-called framing problem. So that didn't pass the sniff test for me. It seemed implausible to start with. When you looked at the magnitudes, they weren't plausible. So, you know, I I, I think I have a really good nose after a while. I start to think, you know, a lot of these studies that I didn't believe, in fact, didn't hold up when subject to replication and, and testing. So I start to think, you know, I'm really good at the sniff thing. I've got good, really good common sense. And I think it's possible that there are people who are, have better common sense, better intuition, better judgment than others. But at the same time, I'm aware that, you know, maybe I kind of overestimate my sniff ability. <laughs> and I'm going to give you an example. So there's a famous study, which I'm not going to describe in exact detail, but it's a test of perception. It asks you, Many many listeners will have will have read about this or actually seen it, and I suggest you go to YouTube and you, Rob, you can put up a link. I'm sure to the to this actual experiment. It's an experiment about counting. You have to watch a bunch of people playing basketball, and they pass the basketball around among themselves, and you're supposed to count how many times the how many passes they make. And it turns out that after you've done that, you, you may have miss something that also happened in the video besides basketball passes. I'm not going to mention what it is, so you can go do this yourself. And when I read about that study, I'm thinking, you know, I don't think that's really plausible. Would you really not see that because you're so focused on counting the basketball passes? And then again, I remember I thought, didn't I try that the first time? And didn't wasn't I fooled? I'm not sure. Oh, I wouldn't have been fooled. That's ridiculous. So I'm thinking that in my head, right? I'm thinking, you know, because when you go and watch the video the second time, and you already know about what you're supposed to look for, you, you, you see it right away. And so maybe that's just a place where my sniff test was right as usual. This is absurd. Nobody really is fooled by this. So the other day I was, I live in Maryland. It's really warm here this summer. And I keep a fan in my uh, office, but I occasionally move it out onto the back porch because I'm sitting outside. It's warm out there, but we're sitting outside having lunch today, my wife and I, and I have the fan going. So the other day, I, I wanted to get the fan, and I went to the into my office to get it because it wasn't on the back porch, and I couldn't find it. And I said to my wife, have you seen the fan? Because there are only two places to have it. It's either on the back porch or it's in my office. And she said, well, I think it's over there. And you know where over there was? It was right in front of the door to the back porch. So when I came off the back porch, I actually had – it's a big fan, by the way. It's a stand-up six-foot-tall <laughs> fan. I had to go around it. Literally, it's not like, oh, I could I could see it. I had to avoid, I didn't walk into it. I yeah. avoided it successfully on my quest to the office to pick it up. And when I got to the office, I didn't see it. I said to my wife, where is it? And I had literally almost banged into it and I had seen it clearly with my eyes, but I never perceived it. So that experience has got me to be a little bit more skeptical about the power of common sense and my sniff test and armchair theorizing. So in truth, I think all those things are valuable. I think it's after that long story, which <laughs> you enjoyed. All those things are important. It's important to have a framework for thinking about the world, you know, to help you organize your thinking, organize the facts. That That's called theory because the, the world's complicated. There's a lot of stuff going on and you can't absorb and, and, and process everything. You need a way to think about what you should be processing, what you should be thinking about, what's important. 
So theory is important or a worldview or a framework or a lens. At the same time, common sense is important. The lessons you've learned from life and things that can't be measured easily quantified. And then facts are really important too. So for all my skepticism about empirical research, I have never claimed that facts are irrelevant. Facts are huge. (laughs) And science underlies 99.9% of the things that make our life pleasant. You know, my iPhone, this conversation, the ability to podcast, they're all the result of science and the analytical approach and the use of empirical data and studies. And so I I never want people to think that, oh, he just thinks anything goes. It doesn't. A lot of things are ridiculous and facts can disprove them. And it's really important. So all certainly all three things matter. But even when you combine all three, I guess part of what I'm, you know, part of my lesson and uh, approach is to say, well, you should still be somewhat agnostic about what you know and you don't and be aware of what you don't know. Yeah. Is that what you asked me? Uh, yeah, kind of. So, I mean, I guess I think I, in my head, I kind of have these different dials of the different kinds of evidence and I try to like weight them appropriately. And I guess sometimes you end up in a situation where you're just like, well, common sense isn't going to be very reliable here. And, you know, theory probably won't work either. And, you know, empirical information is also kind of bad. And then you're like, well, I guess I'm giving equal weight to all of them. And the end result is going to be I'm going to be pretty agnostic because I just don't know. Very, I, I'm just not going to be able to figure this out because all of these sources of evidence are, are too unreliable. I guess I feel like you brought down the empirical research thing. And I wonder whether, you know, you talk for a lot, for example, about how macroeconomics is not a science and we just don't really have very reliable knowledge in, in macroeconomics at all because it's based so much on theoretical reasoning. But then there's other cases where you really do put a lot of a lot of weight on, on, on theory. And I, and I wonder whether you fully thought through about whether it's consistent. I guess actually a neat example here is the is the minimum wage, I guess. So, so there's, I guess, two things here. One is that for many people, they have a common sense notion that increasing the minimum wage will increase the incomes of you know, poorer people, which is, I think, a common sense that you think is, is, is mistaken because uh, you're, you're not, not, not super keen on the, on the minimum wage. And then we've got kind of the economic theory, I guess, would, would suggest that increasing the minimum wage will increase unemployment among people who are, who are earning low salaries. And then we've got some formal empirical research in the United States suggesting that maybe, in fact, it doesn't cause people to lose their, their jobs all that much. But I think when this has come up on, on EconTalk before, you've talked quite a lot about how you don't really trust the empirical research suggesting that increasing the minimum wage doesn't cause disemployment effects. But do you also think that maybe you should place a bit less weight on common sense because, well, I mean, I guess to, to begin with, you, you're arguing that we should, to some extent, throw out most people's common sense on this issue to begin with. And then maybe also just we should trust economic theory, microeconomic theory a, a little bit less, not, not assume that, that that's spitting out the, the right answer, just because in general, people are bad at doing theoretical reasoning and figuring out whether arguments are right and, and especially figuring out whether they translate to the, to the real world. So there's a lot there, and I, I, I'm going to try to remember a bunch of things I want to I want to clarify, and then I'll try to answer your question. First, I, I don't like macroeconomics not be, not because the theories are complex, but because I think the are too mathematical. I think it's because the da- the data are not detailed enough, and I don't think the aggregate ways that we look at the world using macroeconomics are, are reliable enough. On the point about the minimum wage and common sense, absolutely the minimum wage can raise the wages of low-income people, just not enough of them. That's the crucial question, right? So I don't disagree with that with that point that if you keep your job after, your, after the minimum wage is increased, it's, it can be good for your income, assuming you don't have to work a lot harder and assuming you're not then giving up, say, training that was going to be given to you before. So it is a, it is a little more complicated than, than maybe the common sense thought is. But certainly I think that the idea that the raising minimum wage has helped some workers is, is 100% true, at least in the, financials, in the financial sense. The real question is at, at what cost? 
So I, I, I want to come to that. But before I do, can I backtrack for a minute? Sure. Because you said there are three things we use to make decisions. There's common sense, there's empirical analysis, and there's theory. There's a fourth way we used to make decisions. And it's out of fashion, which is tradition. We used to say, should I have a child or not? Most people would, in, through most human history, would say, it's not a decision. Of course, you should have children. That's uh, it's not even not even in the it's not even the choice set. If you're married, you, you should, of course you should try. You may not be able to biologically, but of course, having being a parent is a, it's part of uh, it's what you do. It's your religion tells you to your family, your parents. So that we have unmoored a lot of our decisions from those traditional ways of thinking. You have to d- interesting conversation about whether those traditional ways of thinking represent the wisdom of crowds or the stupidity of crowds. But many of us in modern times have said, I don't, I don't, I don't have any, I don't truck with that. It's not my, I don't believe in tradition. I don't believe in authority. don't believe in, in, in those kind of norms. I'm just going to make my own decisions for myself using those other three things that you mentioned. So I just want to mention that because I just think that's interesting. But to go back to the minimum wage. So here's the problem. The problem is it's probably been, there are, not probably, there have been hundreds of studies of the impact of the minimum wage on employment. I do want to emphasize that employment is not the only thing we care about. It's weird that that's the thing that we've relentlessly focused on. And you know why? We focused on it because you can count whether a person, yeah, measurable. A person (laughs) has a job or doesn't. Not exactly, because you can have 0.7 of a job if you only work a certain number of hours. But in general, it's somewhat observable how the impact of the minimum wage on hours of work and whether you have a job or not. So that's what we focused on. We have not focused on the other things I mentioned, whether your boss is nice to you on the job, whether you get training, whether it leads to other opportunities and so on. So those are harder to measure, tend to be ignored. Put that to the side for the moment. It's still the case that there have been hundreds of studies on whether the minimum wage increases or decreases employment or leaves it unchanged. Early days of that literature, meaning 1950s, 1960s to about 19, early 1990s, that evidence was overwhelming. The minimum wage has a big negative effect on the employment opportunities of low-skill workers. Since then, it's more mixed, but there are a lot of studies that say, no, it doesn't hurt them hardly at all, if at all. And now the question is, do I say, okay, why is that change different? Is it because there's something fundamentally different about the American economy? Possible. Or is it because there's something fundamentally different about the people doing the studies? Also possible. <laughs> yeah. Or is the data, et cetera. Now, the people who, who advocate on this issue tend to make the claim that, well, we have new kinds of data. It's not just that we have new studies. We have better data. And I would argue that's probably not true. But I, I think there's, there's an interesting case to be made that the minimum wage question is more open than it was, say, in 1970, when I think it was, quote, open and shut. Now, confronted with that reality, the fact that there are more studies now lately that tend to show that it's relatively harmful. So, again, there are many that show that it's still harmful to the people it's trying to help, the lower-skilled people. Then I have to ask the question, OK, so let's suppose you're right. Let's suppose that the minimum wage studies are better now because they have better data, better econometric techniques, better empirical analysis. And I'm going to ignore, let's say all the other issues I raised a minute ago are really relevant about training and how you're treated on the job and so on. And in fact, the economy is different and everything. People don't respond to those incentives the way they used to. Employers don't. So that's a common claim. And I look at that and I say, well, what about all the other claims that you make? Same person about how employers respond. So the people who tend to think that the minimum wage is a really good idea and who argue that the empirical work supports that claim because it shows that firms don't respond as negatively as often you might think. 
They also claim that firms relentlessly pursue profit and will move a business to Asia in a minute or to Mexico to save a little bit of money. That is, they're very sensitive in this worldview to the wages that they have to pay. And if they think the wages are too high here, they're going to move. They're going to move their factory or plant to Mexico or Indonesia or China. And yet somehow when the minimum wage goes up, they don't respond. So I find that troubling. That's a case where that kind of evidence about how, say, what motivates a firm or what how firms respond to changes in the environment, I'm going to use some of that intuition from that, those examples in both cases. And I think that's, you know, that's a problem. So that's, I would say, the way I ground my skepticism. Now, I have to say that as a non-interventionist generally and a person who likes free markets, I'm extremely biased in favor of free markets. I'm going to be naturally <laughs> prone to disregarding evidence that goes against my worldview. And I just did that. So I have to take that, that claim with a grain of salt and my own skepticism that maybe it's not really motivated by looking at the data and looking at the evidence and weighing the common sense versus the empirical analysis versus the theory. Maybe just my philosophical outlook imposing a conclusion that's biased. But it could be true of the other people too. So, you know, it's hard to know. All right, let's 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 turn to a different example, a more maybe practical day-to-day example that people might be used to. I think uh, last last year, you and Julia Galef had this conversation on Twitter about you know, how much we should use empirical research when deciding whether to have kids. She, she suggested she would really love to, to see this study run where you recruited 10,000 people who are unsure if they wanted to have kids. Then you asked them a bunch of questions like, you know, do you enjoy being around kids? Are you already enjoying your life? Like, what do you think of the pros and cons of having kids? And then 20 years later, you followed up and asked, did you have kids? And are you glad whether you did? And then you looked at, say, the relationship between those questions about you know, whether they expected to enjoy kids and whether they were already enjoying their life and their satisfaction with their decision to, to have kids. And you, uh, yeah, you hated this idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, I was just, skeptical. Yeah, do you, want to, do you want to explain why you think that just wouldn't be, wouldn't be helpful in making a decision? Well, it's an interesting example now, given our previous conversation, because, you know, one way to think about it is over the next 20 years, you, you'll, you'll wait for this data to come out. And then when you're 45, you'll know whether you should have kids or not. And maybe it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> or worse, it turns out, Everybody had kids, didn't like it so much, but by the time 20 years have passed, there are all these wonderful policies in place to make it easier to have kids or more pleasant to have kids. We've invented external wombs. You don't even have to get pregnant anymore. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> so that's relevant given our previous conversation. But I, the other things I think are, are more interesting, which um, have to do with just trying to measure satisfaction or happiness. You know, we want to think of happiness as a, um, in math, we call it a scalar, a number, seven. Seven on a scale of one to 10. Like if you ask me right now, how glad are you that you have four children? I actually would say 11 on a scale of one to 10. But, you know, some people might, if they were honest, and that's one of the challenges of survey data, you know, are people really going to be honest to the surveyor, person answering the questions, they're going to be honest with themselves. Do they really want to admit that it was a terrible mistake to have kids? Do they really want to, who knows whether that's honest or not? But inevitably, in a survey like that, it's either Often, not always, you can make it a little more nuanced, but it's often a yes-no question. Are you glad you had kids? Or on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you had kids? And I would argue that that sterility of reducing something as complicated as being a parent to a number, it's not so much trying to measure it. It's that what you're trying to measure is so much more complicated than, than a, a point estimate like that, a scalar, a single number. It's a giant, in fact, it's a giant matrix There are some glorious things about having children and some not so glorious things. And fundamentally, I believe that the reason most people are glad that they had kids 
has nothing to do with day-to-day satisfaction and what they put on a scale of one to 10. It has to do with their identity, who they became after they had children. For me, that's the essence of that decision. It's not like, oh, was it worth it? All those diapers you changed, the vomit you cleaned up, the whining, the wailing, the tragedy, the wounds, the, the stitches. There's a lot of negatives. The carpooling, those are the negatives, okay? Then you have that, the glorious highs, the wondrous things, the, the deep satisfactions, the emotional joy that you feel and delight in, in having children. It's not about comparing those two things. I, I mean, that just isn't what it's about. It's about who you've become. And so to me, the whole idea of a survey, now, I don't want to totally denigrate the idea of a survey. I, I think you could, you know, I think there is a survey. It's called literature. There's an enormous amount of evidence about what it's like to be a parent in the world's literature, in the poems, in the plays, in the fiction. So if you want to find out what it's like to be a parent, you have no hope, by the way, none. If you're not a parent now, you have no way of knowing. But if you want to get a taste of it, Instead of babysitting, which gives you a little bit of a taste, you'd be better off reading books about people who are parents. And I don't mean non-fictional accounts, fictional accounts that try to distill that identity change that I'm talking about. So I don't think it's, I don't think, uh, you know, L.A. Paul, you mentioned her at the beginning of our conversation, a guest I had on Econ Talk. She has a wonderful book called Transformative Experiences, where she compares uh, a lot of these choices to the choice to become a vampire. You know, tongue in cheek, but it's quite a useful way to think about it. You know, before you're a vampire, vampiring looks vile and disgusting. After you're a vampire, looks fantastic. You know, it's fan- what were you doing before? Out in the daytime all the time. Vampiring is wonderful. Sleeping in a coffin's delightful. I'm a very dated vampire fan, by the way. <laughs> I go back to the original uh, Bram Stoker Dracula version. I'm sure Twilight and others have more sophisticated versions of vampires, so I'm probably making a fool of myself. But, but the point is, is that until you've made the leap, you can't know what it's like, and therefore you are in the darkness. You are facing irreducible uncertainty. And so if you've never had kids before and you look at parents hauling around diaper bags and driving a minivan and having lousy vacations because they can't go anywhere without their kids, and therefore they have to choose some options that you'd never choose if you weren't having, if you didn't have kids. Childless people look at parents and go like, well, I don't want to ever be that. And then parents somehow look back at those childless people and say, Boy, I'm sure glad I left that state behind. Now, it could be both sides are fooling themselves, but my guess is that both sides are both correct. Before you've had kids, it doesn't look appealing. And after you've had kids, it looks pretty good. And now what? Are you going to be one of those people before you have kids who turns into one of those people who is satisfied? Even though ex ante, even before the fact, looking ahead, you look it looks miserable to you. What do you do? So those all seem like good reasons to put less weight on this study. And I think it'd be insane to take a study like this, a survey of a bunch of people, and then decide whether to have kids based just on that. But, you know, I've got to decide whether to have kids myself. And I think I would find this study kind of helpful to some extent, especially if there was a striking result where you found that, you know, the answers to some questions were like, you know, are you already enjoying your life? Or, you know, what are the main things that you enjoy doing now? Or do you already enjoy being around kids? If, if one of those had a really strong correlation with then like how much people liked having uh, how much they enjoyed having kids uh, exposed. And I think that could help me give me some idea of, you know, what reference class am I in? I am I in the reference class of people who say that they are super glad that they had kids and they have no regrets. We're in more of a class of people who say, you know, have a more of a mixed response. We're like, well, it made my life better in some ways. And I, uh, you know, I really value my kids, but, but there was also some, some significant downsides. But before we uh, go to that, in the interview with, with LA Paul, you said this, uh, not everyone should have children. Not, not everyone can, of course. 
But for those who can, it's a good idea because it's part of the human experience. It's something to experience. And you could argue that it's harmful. You could argue that you might not like it, but it's part of what most people through human history have experienced. And it will change you. You'll explore it and you'll become a new person. I guess not to be facetious, but it seems like, you know, most people through history were also farmers, say, and, and you know, many of them got smallpox and things like that. And, and those experiences also changed them. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I doubt you would say that that kind of demonstrates that it's good to be a farmer or to get smallpox or to, or to have all of these other like negative experiences that were for, for almost all of history, part of the human experience. Uh, so yeah, why does something being part of the common historical experience show that it's a, it's a good thing to do or you know, usually a good thing to do? Well, I'm going to try to answer that, but I want to go back to your point about you'd learn something from that survey. Mm about the reference class, because uh, I remember when that Twitter discussion was going on, somebody said to me, uh, well, if, if it turned out that 92% of their parents were satisfied and glad they had kids, that would tell you something. Well, what it would tell you is that 92% of the people who answered that survey answered it with a yes, assuming it was accurately transcribed, there were errors, et cetera. And you forgot about the fact to ask often when you saw that headline, you forgot to ask, I wonder who did the survey? You know, when they asked the reference group, how many things did they include? Did they exclude anything? Were some of those correlations just random given that they had so many variables and all they did was eventually, by definition, you're going to find at least 5% that are just purely random? So I would just, I would caution you there on that issue. But on this human experience thing, it's, I hadn't thought about it. I mean, that was just a, my first thought. It's a great point to challenge because I'm not a big fan of smallpox, um, <laughs> but but I do think it's interesting that a lot of people would argue you should be a farmer. You should, for example, be close to your food. It's a better world. It was a better. It was a better world when we, when we were close to the nature, close to the ground, and and we had to see the animals we killed, for example. And therefore, you might decide to be a vegetarian if you didn't couldn't buy your chicken in that plastic Purdue p- package that makes it look like something other than a chicken. So that's a whole interesting question. You could argue that a lot of those things, it could go the other way, but I'm with you. I don't think it's a compelling argument to say, well, it's part of the human experience. I would say there's something a little different about having children than smallpox, but maybe I I can't make that case. I guess I'm thinking of, um, I'd have to answer that in a more spiritual way, which is that, you know, I really see myself as an extension of my, my parents and my grandparents and not, not in a reincarnation sense, but just in, in the pure, maybe it's not so spiritual. Maybe it's much more scientific. I see myself as a genetic extension of them. And in particular, I'm the, I'm the genetic extension of my parents that they also shaped through, through their environment. So I feel like they're, my mom is still physically alive, but my dad is still alive in me. And I see things in my children that were in my dad that he passed on genetically and environmentally through me that I in turn passed on environmentally to my kids. So I think this whole human longevity generational thing is kind of non-trivial. So I don't know. But that's it's a good challenge. And I I will be writing about this, I hope, in my new book. And I have to, I have to think about how to I have to think about it some more. Well, it's a good challenge. We've only got 10 minutes left, but I'm keen to talk a little bit about utilitarianism. I think yeah, it won't of, take us. It won't take us ten minutes to, to <laughs> we, totally I think we to refute it, it. We don't need ten I'm minutes. Sure we'll we'll do it the same view. <laughs> yeah. So let's see. I think maybe one of the things that surprises me most about your view on utilitarianism, or at least on kind of well well being as a as a moral factor, is it seems like sometimes you suggest that it's just not possible to compare welfare differences or welfare effects on on different people. Not just like in practice, it's hard to measure, which is like which is obviously true, and we have no kind of scientific way of quantifying it. Sometimes it seems like you suggest that just just in principle, there's no way of weighing these things up. But then that that would seem to have this kind of 
crazy implication that say, you know, if one person, if I stubbed my toe and someone else was like catastrophically injured in a, in a car accident, we just couldn't say which of these things from a consequence or well-being point of view was was worse. And I guess my, my mind revolts at that idea. It's like maybe there's cases where it's close and you, and you can't say whether this thing, effect on person A is bigger or smaller than effect on person B. But it seems like at, at the extremes you can. And that to me then suggests that in principle, we can say things about welfare impacts across people. What, what do you make of that? I, at the personal level, I would certainly prefer stubbing my toe to being in a traffic accident. Okay. I think every human being would. Every human being. So does that imply that I should stub my toe to prevent you from having an auto accident? And I think the answer is probably yes. I think if I can, this is a little bit like um, the Peter Singer uh, example, which he opens his- Child in the pond. Yeah, the child in the pond. So there's a child drowning in the pond and I'm in my nice shoes and suit on the way to work. I don't have a nice suit really, but okay, we'll pretend. (laughs) I do have some nice shoes. I have some nice shoes though. Uh, I like shoes. So I'm, I'm on my way to, let's say, uh, to work, and, and I see this kid struggling in the pond. And if I save them, I will ruin my shoes. And is it possible to argue that it is moral to walk on by? And I think the answer is no, not possible. I, I, I think it's a moral imperative to ruin your shoes. I think that's a no-brainer. So then the question is— Why? Why? Uh, no, no, I, I think the why, well, you're going to push me to the why because you got this nice <laughs> calculus thing working. I like that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going in a different direction though because I got to save my argument. Yeah. Uh, I think the argument then is now what? what? What's the implication of that for the rest of my life, for the rest of my behavior? Does it mean I should walk by the pond every day on the way to work to make sure I keep people from drowning? If I did, and if people drown there often, I might start wearing a different pair of shoes every morning and change into my shoes later my fancy shoes. And then you'd ask the question, well, why are people drowning in the pond? Are their parents not taking care of them? If they know that strangers are there to, to, to save them all the time, are people going to be as careful taking care of their kids and teach them lessons about risk and so on? So you start, even in this silly, contrived example, you'd have to think about, is that really imply I have to give money to bed nets instead of throwing a birthday party for my kid if I live in a Western, relatively wealthy country? And, you know, I come back to my point earlier. Obviously, I think there's a lot to be said for giving money to charity. I, I didn't say that clearly. I, I just mentioned in passing, I try to give 10% of my after income to charity. I think it's a really good idea. I think it's really good to help other people. I think it's not just rewarding personally, which I think it can be, but it's also, quote, the right thing to do. And I don't, I don't have any problem with making a sacrifice to help someone else because I think their gain is so large that it's worth me incurring a cost whether that's financial or ruining my shoes or being late for work and telling my boss, you know, sorry, I'm late. I had to go save a kid. I don't think anybody should say, well, you're fired. Sorry, you're late. But then the question is, what else beside that? And does that justify progressive taxation of a, of a confiscatory sort? Does it justify what other interventions that justify? I think each person, you know, has to make their own call about how to make the world a better place and those kind of interpersonal comparisons we're talking about. But I don't know what else to make of it. So I don't have any problem. I, I have to confess, I hadn't thought about your point. I think it's a great point. And then thinking about it as sort of a personal thing, as an armchair theorist for myself, I certainly, it's not like, oh, some days I'd be, rather be in a car accident than stub my toe. So I, 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 I agree with your basic point. I think what, what is hard then is now what? I don't accept the argument that we can then aggregate across people in, non, in, in cases where it's more complicated. 
And I, and I don't know how to think about that. And I think there's a risk of, of the temptation to aggregate like that. So, yeah, it's interesting. I guess I agree that, so, so there is something that's a bit odd about saying, oh, you know, that the happiness of a country is eight for this one and 8.2 yeah. for that one. I agree there's something that's counterintuitive and you're like, yeah, can that really be true? Can we aggregate in this way? Or has this just become a nonsense? But then I guess when I think about the, like the clear examples in my own life, something from my own experience where I'm like, you know, I'm a pretty cheerful person. And then, you know, I have some friends who are like extremely anxious or depressed or something like that. And I'm like, I think that I can say with some confidence that like, I'm happier. I'm like, <laughs> my subjective experience is better than someone who has like major depression. Or, you know, I could say there's these two different things that could happen or, you know, terrible, a terrible accident or, or, or stubbing your toe. I think I can say that one of those is going to have a more negative effect on someone's subjective well-being than the other one. And then I'm inclined to go from that and then aggregate up and say that that shows that at least in principle, in some sense, we could talk about the aggregate happiness of a country because I'm, I, I've already conceded that I can make, you know, a comparisons of well-being and differences in well-beings and levels of well-beings across people that in principle, one could do this, even if the measurement would be exceedingly difficult or unreliable. But I think, I guess you're more inclined to say the idea of at the macro level, the idea of talking about an aggregate well-being at a country sounds crazy and you're not convinced by the local small cases. Yeah. Do, do you think that is part of what's going on? Well, I'm really not convinced that you can therefore design policy to make the nation happier. And, the, and and that really gets it, I think, what is the key point. So I love your point that you feel pretty confident, say, that you're happier than some of your friends. And by happier, by the way, what exactly do you mean by that? I think you mean your demeanor is more cheerful, your average level of delight in daily life. But of course, happiness isn't all we care about. We care about meaning and serenity and some more complicated, subtler things. That, that That's part of it. But I think the deeper problem is that, and the reason is I think a lot of these, this utilitarian calculus issue is is, is a bit of a, a red herring. I think it, it's missing some of the the hard problems. I, I agree with a lot of the, the things you've said. I, don't, I think I agree with all of them. But then the question is now what? And in particular, the real issue, the real place it gets hard is if I execute this person in a public square in a really gruesome way that's humiliating to them, but I give 100 million people a thrill watching on TV, I think most of us would say that's not moral, even though the happiness and joy of the sadists outweighs one single person's embarrassment and death. I'd say we'd say that that's a bad road to go down. <laughs> and so just like most, you know, I like to quote Arnold Klang, there is no we, lose the we, he says. There's no we as a nation who benefits from X, unless it's nuclear extermination. Yeah, then it's <laughs> generally better to avoid nuclear extermination. But most public policies help some groups at the expense of others. And I'm not really comfortable saying, what, uh, let's go back to the minimum wage. If I can help the highest skilled, low-skilled workers through minimum wage by punishing the least skilled because they're going to be the ones who lose their jobs, that strikes me as fundamentally immoral. And so I don't – to me, that's those are the harder questions. And those aren't going to be adjudicated, measured in any, in any successful way. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot, to, lot to tackle there. I mean I think when people consider the example of you know, yeah, unjustly executing one person to benefit lots of other people, there's like many reasons why people just find that morally repugnant. 
I mean, one is the, the idea of a country of people who enjoy watching executions is very disturbing. <laughs> and, yes, and I think it, correct. That, that doesn't suggest that things are going to go well. Then I think it, I just I completely share the intuition that it's just wrong because it's unjust to, to murder someone, you know, even if it would provide yeah, uh, all of these. Nothing to do with the calculus. Yeah, yeah. It's not, yeah I, obviously, I have that intuition as well. I guess you also might think that a society that just randomly executes people, like if you realize that, or people are eventually going to figure out that their society is run in this unjust way, a capricious way, and that is going to reduce people's welfare in the bigger picture. So that, yeah, I mean, there's also all kinds of consequentialist arguments that one could give for why this is a bad path to go down, even if in some some narrow sense, it seems like it's raising welfare just during the period of this television program. But yeah, there's exactly. a lot exactly. of different issues there. I guess, can I just mention, I want to mention that uh, there's a short story called uh, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula Le Guin uh, that gets looks at some of these issues. Listeners may find that of interest. You can find it online. She wrote, it's collected in her collection. I think it's called The Winds Four Quarters, but uh, you can find it online in violation of copyright. But if that's your style, you can find it. Yeah. So I'm inclined with these policy decisions. Maybe we just don't really have time for this. But with these policy decisions, I'm kind of inclined to try to do the best that I can to to weigh up the, the pros and cons. And I think that we should have a presumption in favor of inaction because I also care about autonomy. And, you know, if if the positives and negatives from a consequentialist or utilitarian point of view are very finely balanced, then it seems like you should just leave people alone and not force them to do anything. But then in the cases where it seems like the, the welfare gains would be enormous relative to the cost, then in those cases, I'm potentially, you know, I'm willing to accept that there's, we could, we could tax people or we could pass a regulation, uh, this or that. And I think that's where, that's where most people are at. And it's interesting that you, I think you, you can see it in some cases that you can do these comparisons, but then you become very suspicious at the, at the big level. But I wonder whether it's important to distinguish between kind of the philosophical issue here about the nature of well-being and subjectivity and the practical political concern of like how will these ideas be abused and what negative policy consequences can they have if people take these numbers too literally rather than, you know, using other ways to make decisions about what, what public policy should be, like saying, well, maybe we should leave people alone unless there's a really compelling reason not to. Well, you know, I think it's all the above. I, I, I think it's it's not one reason. You know, I think... I think it's important to remember um, to avoid downside, the worst downsides. If I thought a policy was going to lead to tyranny or oppression, I would stay away from it, even though it might look like in the short run or if the numbers looked good. I'd want to worry about the worst outcomes, not just say the average outcome. So you're right. I think most people are comfortable with that kind of calculus, but maybe they're wrong. Maybe they shouldn't (laughs) be. Maybe the tolerance for intervention, like you're talking about, that makes even most of the time, yeah, pretty much a lot of people better off and only a few people a little worse off, that that that's maybe not the best policy to go for. But I think that's the, that's why in some sense, you know, I was making fun of myself earlier about my biases causing me to assess data in a certain way. I think in a lot of ways for me, sometimes it, it just comes down to that, which is most human history is, is ugly. We're living in a a particularly pleasant time where democracy is fairly widespread and economic freedom is somewhat widespread. And I think they're both at risk right now. And so I'm looking right now at things that are to push us away from the brink. I think, uh, you know, we we we, were, we started this conversation about what are the biggest problems that we need to fix. That might be the biggest one. The fact that our public discourse is so vitriolic and our perception of reality is so skewed by our political and ideological lenses and that's what I'm thinking about for what it's worth. I don't know if I can dent it, but um, it's deeply disturbing to me. Yeah, I'm I'm not based in the United States anymore, but uh, watching watching the news coming out of the United States, I really do worry about 
civil society in the US? Or, you know, yeah. is this country going to hold together? And, um, you know, it, it does, does it form a natural country that can get along with itself? And it's, it, 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 it is really <laughs> alarming. Uh, you, I mean, you wonder where, where, where does that go? It's, it's, it, it's very concerning. Yeah, well, I've got so many more questions and there's so many other things that we could talk about, but unfortunately we- You uh, have me on again, Rob. I, I, would, I would love to, I would love to. <laughs> maybe maybe uh, you can become the Mike Munger of the 80,000 Hours podcast. Uh, there you go. <laughs> one day we'll there have you your go. 37th appearance or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, my guest today has been uh, Russ Roberts. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Russ. Uh, it was great fun, Rob. Really loved the conversation. I hope you found that conversation fun. Russ's show Econ Talk uh, is really great, uh, but as I mentioned at the start of the episode, it has been running weekly since 2006, which means there's an enormous number of episodes out there. I think 750 or maybe even 800 now. That can make it a little bit intimidating to launch into and a little bit hard to figure out uh, which are the best old episodes to listen to. So this is a great moment to let you know that I've put together a list of my favorite 100 episodes of Econ Talk, which might offer a great place for you all to start listening if you haven't heard the show before. To give you a taste, my three top episodes of all time are first, uh, Brendan O'Donoghue, uh, a person who works at a potato crisp factory, uh, talking about how that factory works to produce huge numbers of, of crisps uh, at a very low cost uh, while avoiding any bad ones getting through or the chips uh, going stale before they reach you. Uh, the technology involved in something as mundane as that is just extraordinary. Uh, second on the list is Rachel Loudon, uh, giving a history of the ideologies that different people and societies have had about food, uh, going back to the beginning of civilization. Uh, some of the facts in that conversation are just perfect to uh, pull out at dinner parties. And my third favorite interview uh, is one with Christopher Hitchens about George Orwell, uh, who's the author of 1984 and Animal Farm, uh, which was recorded all the way back in 2009. Whatever you think of Hitchens, uh, the way that he can speak off the cuff as though he were dictating a polished essay uh, is really quite something. If you want to learn a bunch of economics uh, and just a ton about how the world works in general, uh, you could do worse than get uh, all 100 of those interviews and, and work through them one by one. That list has been doing the rounds for a couple of years now, uh, and quite a few people have told me that they have really appreciated its existence. Just today, I updated it to include the best episodes of uh, 2019. Uh, and last year, due to popular demand, I also turned it into an RSS feed, uh, which you can use to get a list of all those recommended episodes uh, right in your podcasting software, making it much more convenient to work through them. You can also find it by searching in iTunes or whatever podcasting app you use for Rob Wiblin's top EconTalk episode recommendations. I think just searching for Wiblin, my, my surname, uh, might be the easiest way to find it, though. Naturally, we'll link to that in the show notes and the blog post associated with this episode. Uh, you can also find it listed on my personal site at robwiblin.com. All right. The 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Sound editing is by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our website and compiled by Zachy Allhack. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.